Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In addition to being a day for love and friendship, today is the anniversary of another important event that has significance to indigenous people around the globe. It's the anniversary of the day in 1779 that Native Hawaiians killed British explorer and cartographer James Cook. It ended his long career of exploring and laying claim to land that had been home to indigenous people long before Cook arrived. We'll talk about Captain James Cook's legacy in indigenous history right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Indigenous leaders are demanding an apology from the new premier of Alberta for a video published on Twitter. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, they're calling the tweet disappointing and harmful to truth and reconciliation. The video was made while Danielle Smith was in Ottawa for a major premier's conference on health care. The video taken on Parliament Hill had Smith reflecting on the origins of Canada and her interpretation of history. Many years ago, the indigenous people of this land and those that came from across the world united to tame an unforgiving frontier. Native leaders called the video dehumanizing and demoralizing, and they want an apology. Jessica Salkeld is with the Reconciliation Action Group. If she knows anything about that history, she ought to know that what she's saying is a bold-faced lie. Dwayne Bratt is a political science professor at Mount Royal University. This was a scripted video uh, with a message that she wanted to deliver, and it is just so historically inaccurate. The video has since been criticized by many who say Smith is revising parts of history and ignoring a dark chapter of Canadian history. Others say they're concerned about Smith's lack of understanding. Smith said the partnership with First Nations is one she values, but she did not apologize. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Tuksuk Bay, a remote town off the coast of western Alaska, is home to Yupik culture and the social media sensation Noah Loves Christy. KNBA's Jill Freitas brings us their love story. Noah and Christy Lincoln have been married for almost 20 years, have six kids, and a brand new granddaughter. The couple make reenactments of famous movies and TV shows with a twist of native humor. They have over 40,000 followers on Facebook and 20,000 on TikTok. And it all started, they say, while out hunting for geese with their son. We had our son just take the camera and start recording. Noah had Christy do different bird calls, from ravens to geese to even a sexy swan. Be a sexy swan. They posted the video to their Facebook page, where it was shared and reshared hundreds of times. It was at that moment Noah and Christy knew they were onto something big. And I thought, man, we could get so many people to laugh with just me and my wife. After the release of the show Reservation Dogs on Hulu, Native humor has been trending on social media. But Alaska humor is a little different. It usually draws from subsistence hunting, fishing, and guns, like this video. 16 years I've been married. And my wife said she don't love me anymore. All I said is you're not getting a new gun. It's the same thing. It's not. But life wasn't always a comedy for Noah. Early in his life, he says he struggled with an addiction. I was heavily into alcohol and I couldn't keep a job. After realizing what this was doing to his family, Noah swore off alcohol. 
but did he stay sober? I'm so happy to say yes. We're always thanking God for everything. No matter your culture, laughter is universal. That is one thing Noah and Christy supply plenty of. But they also make it a point to sprinkle in inspirational videos with messages of hope that go on to say that at the end of the day, family and faith are everything. I'm Jill Freitas. The National Congress of American Indians Winter Session and State of Indian Nations Address are returning to the nation's capital in person next week for the first time in three years. Tribal leaders from across the country will hear updates from the White House, U.S. lawmakers, and federal officials. NCAI President Fawn Sharp will lay out priorities for the year. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. 18th century British explorer James Cook is revered for his drive and seamanship from Tonga in the South Pacific to the Bering Strait. He put more than 120 English place names on the map, from Mount Edgecombe in Alaska to the Bay of Plenty in New Zealand. That doesn't count the many places named after him. But his colonial exploits were often at odds with the indigenous peoples already living in the places he landed. His conflicts with indigenous people during his efforts to expand the British Empire came to a head on this date in 1779. That's the day he was killed in a skirmish with Native Hawaiians. We're talking about Cook's legacy today from a Native perspective. Are there places in your area named after the British explorer? What does the name James Cook mean to you and your Native community? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also one 800 99 Native. Joining us first from Honolulu, Hawaii, is Dr. Keanu Sai. He's a political scientist. Dr. Sai, welcome to Native America Calling. Well, thank you for having me. Dr. Sai, James Cook is revered around the world, an explorer, a cartographer. How is he regarded in Hawaii? Um, it's not that, that we don't celebrate anything regarding Captain Cook. Uh, he's a part of our history, though. And uh, he's known for, for, for uh, well, they say discovered. He didn't discover Hawaii, but he arrived here. And uh, so he also met his demise here. <laughs> his demise, right. And that's an interesting story. We want to get into that for sure. But when, when, Kirk, excuse me, when Cook first arrived there on the islands, what was life, life like for the people who lived there? Well, it was, well, in, in these islands, there were actually uh, three separate kingdoms. 
the kingdom of Kauai, the kingdom of Maui, and the kingdom of Hawaii. And they were uh, very chiefly, uh, very kingly oriented. In fact, um, anthropologists uh, recently have now referred to these kingdoms, along with Tonga, as uh, primary states or archaic states, the way they're set up, similar to Mesoamerica and, and, and so forth. Um, so it was very feudal-like, and he had classes of people. So you had the king, the chiefs, or nobility, and the commoners. So when Captain Cook first arrived, it was on Kauai in uh, uh, 17, uh, what was that, before. So it was a year before he demise. In, in 1779, and when he arrived in Hawaii, in, in, on Kauai, they say he came across a fisherman, and the fisherman kind of just looked at him. I was like, wow, that's a large ship. <laughs> and that was that first connection that was made, and then he continued his uh, journey. Now, when he came back, uh, returned to Hawaii in 1779, he arrived at that same time that he first touched Kauai a year earlier. And this was a, uh, a season called Makahiki. So the season, you had two primary seasons within uh, these islands under uh, these uh, kingdoms. And it was the, the, the season of peace and the season of war. When he arrived in Kauai, it was during a season of peace. That's roughly four months. Uh, it runs around from March to, I believe, uh, late January, early February. So uh, um, that is when there's festivities, and it's dedicated to the god Lono, right? Now, when that season ends, which is either late January, early February, that's when it gets into the season of war, and that's under Kukailimoku, he's a war god, and that's when wars take place, right? So when he showed up, um, just so happens he arrived during the season of peace, so he was very well received. And when he returned, he was also well received because he arrived during that same time. Now, when he left to continue his uh, his uh, uh, journey, uh, you know, mapping and trying to find the, the Northwest Passage, um, his mask broke in the fore. So he had to come back to uh, Hawaii, Hawaii Island, and then he um, came into Kealakikua Bay, which is where he was before, but it was very different because people were looking at him like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and mm -hmm. some of the chiefs were getting a little anxious, so a couple of them actually stole his schooner off of his, off of his ship. And what uh, Captain Cook did the following day was use a tactic that he used in the southern, in the South Pacific, where if you want, if something is taken, he's going to take something from them and hold them ransom, hold a ransom and say, you give it, I'll give you back. You give me my, my thing, I give you your thing. Well, the one thing he did, which wasn't good, was he went to apprehend uh, King Kalaneo Pu'u, and he was the king of Hawaii Island. And at first, the king thought, Oh, he was a friend, so he's just going to go with him. And, in, and and it was one of his wives that said, no, Colonel uh, Pu'u, he's your enemy. He's taking you away because of the attitude. And he was there with Marines with muskets. And that's when uh, 
uh, uh, uh, it started to get very tense. And that's when uh, a chief, a very high chief under Colonial Pu'u, uh, his name is Kalanimano Okoho'owaha, also known as Kanaina, hit uh, Captain Cook on the head with a club. And another chief stabbed him. And that's when the muskets fire, fired. And uh, about 17 uh, Hawaiians died, but also four Marines and Captain Cook. So that person, Kalani Mano Okaho Oaha, is actually my fourth great-grandfather. So I, we kind of know that story quite well. Um, what's interesting, too, though... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. You had a question? Well, I was gonna ask, okay, so when... Um... When this conflict occurred and Captain Cook and these other uh, people were killed as well, now was this the season of war at this point? Had it had it turned over? Yeah, this was this okay. was during the season of war. Okay, yeah. so let me it just was... ask real quick. So, are, are, are we? Are, I mean, is it is it safe to to assume then that just purely by coincidence, the actual times of year when Cook landed there on that island, um, just because it was either the season of peace versus the season war. I mean, the way these historical events played out were heavily dependent just purely on that circumstances, that circumstance of what time of year he landed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say that his demise was he was a victim of circumstance, not that there was an evil intent. <laughs> you know, what he thought he was doing was, well, it worked in the South Pacific. It should work here. Well, maybe you can do that with a, a commoner like a fisherman. You don't do that to a king. <laughs> and that's when it got a little tense. Right, right. So, I mean, they were already on high alert just because it was that war season. And um, wow. And this king was taken ransom like that. So then what happened next after after the, the killing and after the, the fighting uh, ended? So here's the thing about Hawaii's, Hawaii's relationship with Captain Cook. It wasn't... Um, a bad relationship. It was actually, he was revered and respected when he um, was traveling around the islands, right? So it was, when, when, when he died, um, there, was a, there was a situation where there had to be um, reconciling of the situation, where they had to, what they call mihi, uh, resolve it. So what they did was they, the, the, the chiefs, and the kahunas would um, would retrieve Captain Cook's body, and they would treat his body as they would treat an ali'i or a chief. And what a custom that was done is you have an underground oven, right? It's almost like a steam bed, not a fire. And you put the body in this oven to get the meat off, right? All the flesh. And all you have is the bones. And then you... You, you, you prepare the bones, you wipe it clean. And, and that is eventually, uh, some of the bones were given to uh, Captain King, I believe, who was under Captain Cook at that time. And then Captain uh, Cook was given a, a sea burial. Now, some other bones of Captain Cook were kept. They were kept by the chiefs because that was not because it was bad. <laughs> they kept it because he was revered as a friend. So it was that type of tradition that Hawaiians had. Now, what's interesting here is you had a lieutenant 
Captain Cook. You had a lieutenant with Captain Cook uh, named Captain George Vancouver. Now, in, now Captain Vancouver befriend, befriended some of the young chiefs under Colonial Pool at that time. When James, when, when uh, George Vancouver uh, continued where Captain Cook left off, he came to Hawaii, right? And he arrived here in 1790, uh, started his uh, expedition in 1794 in the South Pacific, and he arrived in Hawaii. And he eventually entered into an agreement with King Kamehameha I, who was the successor to King Colonial Pu'u of Hawaii Island, to enter into an agreement to join the British uh, Empire. And that's when, in 1794, the Kingdom of Hawaii became a British protectorate. So, and then eventually, from being a British protector in 1794, Queen Victoria, in 1843, recognized the Hawaiian Kingdom as an independent state. And Hawaii was the first non-European and country out of Polynesia to be recognized as an independent state. So our flag of the Hawaiian Kingdom has the Union Jack on it. And that's not because we're colonized. No, we had a relationship with the British that was very different than our uh, our cousins in New Zealand, the Ma- uh, the Maoris, where they had a war against the British because of colonizers coming in. But Hawaii was never colonized. That's something unique. We're speaking with Dr. Keanu Sai. He is a political scientist. He's in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he's uh, giving us some riveting history on uh Captain James Cook and his legacy there on the Hawaiian Islands. Give us a call if you have a question. Uh, 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll be right back. Leonard Peltier remains one of the biggest symbols from the violent struggle for Native American rights and recognition at a crucial time in history. His supporters continue to fight for his release 47 years after he was convicted in the deaths of two FBI agents. We'll find out the latest about Leonard Peltier's chances for freedom on the next Native America Calling. My precious relatives, Think Teeth, Medicaid and CHIP cover many children's dental services, including teeth cleanings, fluoride treatments, and fillings. For more information about your children's dental health, contact your Indian health care provider Visit insurekidsnow.gov or call 877-543-7669. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the legacy of British explorer Captain James Cook. He was killed on this day in Hawaii in 1779. You can join our conversation. How are Cook's exploits remembered in your native community these many years later? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Earlier, we listened to Dr. Keanu Sai talk about Captain James Cook's influence there on the Hawaiian Islands. Let's now listen to a perspective about Cook's early exploration of Australia. Bo Spiram is an Aboriginal radio host and produces a podcast called Frontier War Stories about conflicts and violence against Aboriginal people. He talked with producer Andy Murphy. He came at a time where Aboriginal people have had interaction with outsiders, the top part of Australia, always getting visited frequently. A lot of trade uh, was happening as well, so 
when Lieutenant Cook was given the mission to sort of seek out the Great Southern Land, he was trying to find uh, some safe places to sort of pull up and, 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 and go to land. Cook and the people on the ship knew uh, there was uh, people here and possibly that they may have been communicating with each other as well. And this happened all the way up to the Torres Straits. Up there, there's a place called Possession Island, and that's where he supposedly stuck the flag and proclaimed the east coast of Australia a British colony. There's various places that he stopped. I know as he was going up the east coast, they hit, I believe, maybe some reefs. They were helped by mob to fix up the boat, I, I believe. When they got to Sydney, there was a, a bit of a battle. There's a whole host of places along the east coast that are named after a ship like 1770 Cooktown. Yeah, that sort of are there for commemoration as well. How did Indigenous people treat him or view him? And then how did Cook treat Indigenous people? Uh, his job was to find the great southern land. Um, and I guess by any means necessary. Obviously, as they say, you know, oh, if, the, if anybody's there, we have to have a treaty or you know, we have to broker some deal with the locals. And, and obviously that wasn't the case because when Cook came and, uh, and left, he said the land was uh, terra nullius, you know, barren land, you know, no man's land or, or no, no inhabitants on the land. So that in itself is an act of sort of violence in a way to say that there isn't anybody here that doesn't exist. And then eight years later, yeah, that's when sort of the full intent of the invasion begins. Was this a big turning point in Aboriginal history? This was a point of no return, you know? Yeah, let's not sort of fall into the trap of, you know, fetishizing or fantasizing that it was the coming together of two races or, you know, it's sort of like your, your Pocahontas story, like definitely wasn't anything like that. You know, it was a brutal invasion, you know, and you got to look at the governors of certain states and territories uh, when they formed them. They were military experts and military generals and leaders in like the Napoleonic War. A lot of the amount of police that, you know, carried out massacres were soldiers of the Napoleonic War and used those tactics very harshly on Aboriginal people to disperse Aboriginal people, to remove Aboriginal people from certain lands, and also to respond to the resistance from Aboriginal people as well. You know, the, the invasion of Australia was very fast and brutal, meaning that, you know, within sort of 30 years, there were sort of significant infrastructure built pretty much in Sydney. You know, Sydney was a, was a vibrant sort of place. It was, it was a vibrant area. 50 years after, you know, the invasion began, they got to my country, which is Gimilaroi, is my country. And by the time they got to my land and their tactics of invading and massacring sort of land changed, you know, it was further from the colony. You know, they were going in much larger groups and plus they were using horseback. On arrival, there were skirmishes, but later on, one of the first sanctioned massacres happened. I believe that was the Appen Massacre, and they also entailed, uh, in via by, by secret letter to his personal guards, to go and, um, you know, scare the blacks, essentially. You know, go and kill Aboriginal people and bring uh, the women and the children to me as prisoners of war. Uh, then they wanted to use the mob that they had they stole after massacring mob to pacify other nations to say look you know what i mean this is what we'll do to you followers if you want to continue to resist uh what we're doing um you know essentially saying times are changing and 
you know, your lifestyle is dying out and, you know, we're the future. So either assimilate or, or, or be run over essentially, you know. So this was, you know, the intent after invasion. And, and it was that for the next like 140 years, up until like the 1920s, 1930s, there were massacres and there were sort of um, discussions by Australian officials to say, hey, we'll send you guns and ammunition you know, for, for this punitive expedition to to go and pacify or go and scare or, or even go and kill the blacks up there. This um, notion that Aboriginal people are inferior and that they're savages carried on. And, and as, I guess, as a native person, we sort of understand uh, how, you know, the dominant society views us. And it's a very colonial view that's very draped in sort of these old colonial uh, thoughts and and actions as well so you know we can never sort of get away from those things uh, they still exist you know, even to this day as an aboriginal person you know today is a good day because we reflect uh, not just on beautiful times with a partner if we have a partner of valentine's day but you know a day in which one person's decision ultimately changed the lives the realities of our people and then within saying that you know the decisions of the mob in hawaii altered and changed the lives of this particular individual so big shout out to the brothers and sisters in hawaii that was bo spiram in australia talking with native america calling producer andy murphy uh dr kanu sai who's joining us from honolulu hawaii dr sai um I'd like you to respond to, to Bo's, uh, listening to, to Bo and describing uh, Cook's influence there in Australia. And there at the end, he, he gave you, a sh- uh, Hawaiian people, a shout out uh, for taking out Cook. And it's interesting to, to hear that perspective and then hear your perspective earlier that, that Cook was uh, in many ways revered by the people there on the islands of Hawaii. What's your, what's your reflection there? No, well, I, I know of, of what Cook had done in the South Pacific. And uh, that's what makes Hawaii's story so unique because in in these islands at that time in 1779, they didn't even know uh, the other places in the South Pacific other than uh, Polynesian places where we originated from. But definitely what he shared, well, I completely agree. You know, there's no doubt there. But what happened here was really quite unique in that in, in that it was it was circumstances that created certain situations where it just so happens he's arriving during the time of a season of peace and then he returns during a season of war and uh yeah it it Hawaii is so different it has a unique history because uh, the Hawaiian, the Hawaiian kingdom actually had a close relationship with the British in fact Queen Victoria was uh, the godmother of Prince Albert Kunuiakea who was the son of King Kamehameha IV in the 1850s and 60s. So that's the one thing that, that, that as a political scientist, it's important that we look at each individual case and let the information and evidence explain what happened and not that, let's say, I go in and say, you know what, what happened there must have happened here, so let me assume that mm-hmm. and go from there. You know, so it, it's an important task that we do in political science. It's 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 what is called intertemporality, right? You can't judge yesterday by today's standard, but try to understand it from the time that informed the situation. And it really just brings out more of a story to understand, not necessarily to pick a side, 
but just to really understand it, because for me, it's, it's my great grand, my fourth great grandfather that dealt the blow to Captain Cook, you know. And I, I look at that like, oh, Captain Cook made a bad decision. Not that he's a bad guy, because my great great, my fourth great grandfather didn't see him as a bad guy. In fact, in the ship logs of Captain Cook and Captain uh, uh, James, uh, they, uh, 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 sorry, James King, they actually wrote about my fourth great grandfather you know let me let me just read something to you just to give you an indication so now you're going to hear this from uh from their perspective looking in not from a hawaiian perspective so captain king uh, james king admired the hawaiian nobility and described their legal appearance these chiefs were men of strong and well-proportioned bodies and of countenances remarkably pleasing kanaina especially whose portrait mr weber has drawn was one of the finest men I ever saw. He was about six feet high, had regular and expressive features with lively, dark eyes. His carriage was easy, firm, and graceful. Now he follows up with, we learned that 17 of their countrymen were killed in the first action at Ka'avaloa, and this is where Captain Cook died, of whom five were chiefs, and that Kanaina and his brother our very particular friends were unfortunately of that number. So it gives you another perspective now from them looking at what happened right. and also from Hawaiians looking at what happened. And that, that, that's, that, that's an interesting point that, that history tends to reveal, right? Absolutely, yeah. Just really fascinating discussion and uh, all these sources that you're able to cite, Dr. Sai, uh, really, really enlightening. Uh, we have a comment on Facebook from Michael Collins, who says, Cook had a practice of kidnapping Polynesian navigators and forcing them to guide him to Pacific Islands, which he then claimed to have discovered, claimed for England. Um, in addition to the Hawaiian Islands and, uh, excuse me, and Australia, Captain Cook visited the Cook Inlet in Alaska. And to the folks listening in Alaska and Anchorage, I'd like to ask a question. How does Captain Cook's legacy persist? Or what do you think about his name and reverence in that area? And let's talk a little bit more now about uh, Captain Cook's influence there in Alaska. Joining us from Anchorage is Benjamin Jasek. He is a researcher at the Alaska Native Heritage Center. He's Denina, Athabaskan, and Sukpiak. Benjamin, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. You bet. Now, Cook Inlet is named after Captain Cook. What happened on his voyage to the inlet and in other parts of Alaska? Yeah, and so uh, he was coming up to Alaska to find something called the Northwest Passage, uh, trying to find a way through uh, Alaska all the way up to uh, over to Europe. And whenever he came up to Cook Inlet, or what's now known as Cook Inlet, uh, he decided to, uh, he didn't think that that was going to be the way, but a lot of people on his ship did. And so kind of grudgingly, he ends up going up Cook Inlet, realizing it's not the way to the passage, and then has to turn around again. And that, that's how we get the name Turnigan Arm, because <laughs> he had to turn around again. And, <laughs> okay. what, uh, and what ended up happening was he did trade with, uh, people that could have been my ancestors, Denina uh, Athabaskan over at what's also now knowing, known as Point Possession. And uh, there's really 
uh, an interesting narrative where they traded uh, some of my peoples, traded uh, two dogs uh, for some iron, and one of Cook's men ends up killing one of the dogs. And that's really uh, the extent of his visit over here in the Cook Inlet. Uh, not really doing very much besides having to turn around again and to our amazement, killing one of our dogs for really no good reason but to test out a gun. Uh, but right now, uh, over in the Cook Inlet, uh, uh, you know, his name has uh, pers uh, has gone on over in this area, uh, this area that is traditionally called Tukatnu, uh by my people. And uh, it's just really fascinating to see how uh, someone who did so little in this area ended up having the entire place named after him, where his legacy goes on. Uh, really, uh, in terms of that, uh, that name carrying on uh, by having to turn back around again and really kill it, uh, and by just killing a dog with a gun, uh, it's not really uh, his name per, uh, persisting over in this area. It's not really about what the person did that's really the problem. It's kind of the symbol of imperialism that has become the issue. Okay. Now, what years was Cook uh, there at the Cook Inlet? I, you know, because we know that, that he perished in 1779. About what time was he in Alaska? Uh, he was uh, 1778, uh, okay. potentially a little bit into nine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, and listening to uh, Cook's interaction with people in Hawaii and, and of course, Australia, again, it sounds like a, a very different type of interaction there uh, in the Alaska area. What is, uh, what's the legacy now in terms of just uh, people there, Alaska Native people in and around the Cook Inlet? What's their view yeah. of Captain Cook? Yeah, and uh, one thing to point out is already by this point, uh, Russian fur traders were in the area, and so uh, there were already uh, people from Europe in Alaska. Uh, and so, and that, that's usually what we talk about, uh, either the Alaskan or, or about the Russians, their influence, and, uh, and also whenever the Americans came over. Uh, but Cook's influence, like him as a person, because uh, he really didn't do very much uh, okay. besides is trade. It, is it oh, safe to say? I'm sorry. Is it safe to say that that Captain James Cook is a minor historical figure in Alaska? As the person, yes. Okay. Uh, but for uh, for today, uh, his legacy, his name persisting, uh, it's really become more about. Uh, carrying on the image, because uh, Captain Cook was a naturalist, uh, and especially since 18th century, 18th century naturalism was really in tune with imperialism, uh, mainly as a way to uh, lift up Western European peoples at the expense of really indigenous peoples. 
and that's something that persists even today over in Alaska, where you have this area uh, where uh, Alaska natives have been here forever, yet you have it named after a person that did uh, remarkably little in this area. Uh, it kind of brings about this image of that phrase that we hear time and time again, especially in gift shops, uh, of Alaska being the last frontier, this untouched land where really uh, there have been no actual people here. Okay, uh, Benjamin, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a break, but I definitely want to let you continue when we come back and learn more about uh, Cook's role as a naturalist and also just uh, the lasting impact there of uh, what's could possibly, you know, a minor historical figure, as, as you say. We'll be right back. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're getting Native perspectives on the voyages of Captain James Cook, and there's plenty of time to join our conversation. How did his explorations of your Native lands affect your people and culture? Please share your comments on the air, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Let's get some calls going. Once again, the number, 1-800-996-2848. We've got Benjamin Jasek on the line. He's a researcher at the Alaska Native Heritage Center. He's in Anchorage, Alaska. And Benjamin, before break, uh, you were sharing the irony uh, of Captain James Cook and that even though his name is uh, listed in so many places there in Alaska monuments and such. He actually uh, on a, didn't really have a huge impact there beyond just having his namesake all over the place. And uh, so many discussions now throughout the country, statues and monuments and things like that. And uh, are there moves or efforts to, to change the names of some of these locations in Alaska, Cook Inlet among them, uh, as well as there's a statue of, of Cook in Anchorage as well. And, and what's, the, what's the response there with some of those namesakes, those monuments, those names all over the state? Uh, and so uh, Cook and Lit, he does have a statue here, and there is a movement to try and get rid of it. Uh, but one thing that is important when you're thinking about you know, removing statues of these figures, uh, especially someone... Uh, like James Cook, is to remember that just getting rid of the statue uh, or the symbol, uh, uh, these physical symbols, isn't enough. Uh, there has to be an education that the area that you are at uh, is the Nina land, uh, that we've been here for centuries, we've been here forever. Uh, and while this is a piece of our history, uh, it's a very very short and small piece of our history. Uh, and so uh, having that view of, uh, yes, we can remove these symbols, that is important, but it's also really important to change the narrative, uh, to change the story uh, to the truth that we have always been here. 
uh, as Native peoples, uh, and that our view of the land, uh, uh, you know, has to be there uh, in order to actually tell the full story. Uh, okay. That really. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what's it going to take, uh, you know, to change that narrative you des- as you describe it? Uh, for the most part, education. Uh, a big part is understand, and uh, a big view of Hmong along, uh, among a lot of non-natives uh, that I've heard time and time again is Anchorage has never really been a native place, uh, when <laughs> uh, that's just simply not true. And so education's a really big reality. Uh, but there also has to be the changing of this colonial mindset that this place uh, has been an untouched land. Uh, uh, all that also with the education uh, of the personhood of indigenous peoples. Uh, mm-hmm. A big thing that you see uh, over in Cook's uh, writings is really trying to analyze uh, kind of the levels of savagery uh, of different indigenous peoples. Well, he may say one, uh, one group is really strong, uh, he might like down upon another group, uh, which is really prevalent over all along the Northwest Coast within his own writings. And so changing that narrative uh, that indigenous peoples have personhood uh, is also a really big issue as well. All righty, let's go ahead and go to the phones now. We have Nicole listening in Gallup, New Mexico on station KGLP. Hello, Nicole. Well, good morning, good afternoon to you all. I'm a very proud, proactive, um, great-grandmother that's um, involved in policy and politics. But what I wanted to encourage is that not to really focus on Mr. Cook, but, you know, just like here in the Navajo Nation, what I'm trying to do is work with a new at Nigrant administration to change uh, Fort Wingate, the name Fort Wingate, and all the forts or anything derogatory like Kit Carson and Fort Defiance, uh, to change that to a beautiful Navajo resilient, strong name like for Fort Wingate, it would be the Nebzil Shaspeto, which means strong Navajo in Bear Springs. So I'm trying to change something negative that is into something that's very, very positive. And okay. then once I get done with um, Navajo Nation, I want to go to Bosque Redondo and work with the tribes down there and change that as well. All righty. Well, Nicole, thank you for sharing that information. I hope you're enjoying our, our show today. And yeah, it certainly does these issues with names. Uh, so many Native communities, uh, as well as the Navajo Nation, and what we're learning about today with uh, the legacy of Captain James Cook and the Pacific, as well as uh, parts of Alaska. I'd like to go back to to Dr. Keanu Sai again. And, um, you know, there's so many other aspects of Cook's legacy beyond just his interactions with Native people and some of the issues we're talking about today. And one thing I think is important to note is that he was also uh, very well known as a cartographer and making maps. And uh, I I know there were even maps that he created all those years ago that were still in use uh, by some sailors as as recently as like the 1970s, even into the 1980s, I think. And what what about that side of, of Cook's legacy, Dr. Sai? His uh, ability to make maps and just some of these other contributions, for better or worse, that that he made to uh, the world. 
No, that's a, that's a good point because uh, Hawaii would be impacted by that. So, you know, what, what Cook brought to the mapping issue is uh, longitude, latitude, right, bracketing. And that makes things more precise. You can find things. So when he, when he mapped the Pacific, he also made it where other ships can find Hawaii to get, uh, um, to get refreshments, to get um, water, you know, get refurbished, and then they go back out. And, and many of them were whalers, right? So Hawaii was inundated with the whaling industry coming to Hawaii. And it, that situation actually prompted the Hawaiian kingdom to do government reform in order to pursue the recognition of its independence in order to survive <laughs> with the onslaught of all these foreign ships, right? And some of them were uh, quite hostile and, and, and weren't good. No, they weren't good at all. You know, so it, it, it was circumstances, again, that prompted uh, my country to pursue a particular policy to ensure that it's protected. And, 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 and with Captain Cook, and I want to, I would like to make, I wanted to maybe clarify, I'm not saying that Captain Cook was a good guy and the Hawaiians loved him. I'm just saying that he was okay. a victim of circumstance and the chiefs looked at him in a way of, uh, uh, like a friend, right? The chief of Hawaii mm-hmm. Island. Okay. So let, so let me give some context here. So there is no memorial for Captain Cook, uh, in these islands, except for a marker and, this marker is at the shoreline, uh, concrete, and it says, and this is what it says. It says, near this spot, Captain James Cook met his death, February 14th, 1779. So that's more of just a point to make, not that a revered person has died here. <laughs> and let me read to you something from 1867 of a very renowned Hawaiian historian, uh, Kamakau. He writes, and he refers to my fourth great-grandfather. He writes, if we consider the history of Captain Cook from the start to the end, okay, I, do not come, I do not come out with a flawless name or a good name for him. If there is built a memorial to Kalani Mano Okaho'owaha for, killing, for his killing of the destructive scamp, Captain Cook, that would be something most appropriate. So you can okay. see that uh, Captain okay. Cook has a he has a, a colorful history. Certainly, certainly, <laughs> yeah. And the other things that you know, I, I want to ask you as well because uh, you know one of the things that he is infamous for is is bringing disease, specifically uh, venereal diseases, there uh, to the people on the islands. Also, pillaging some of these communities and taking goods, stolen goods, back to Europe for trade. Uh, where does that fit into the discussion today? Yeah, so Captain Cook didn't pillage anything while he was here. He couldn't because the chiefs were in control, right? But what Cap- what Colonial Pu'u had problems with was Hawaiian women were going to the ships, and that's where the spreading of the venereal diseases started to take place. So, so Colonial Pu'u actually issued a kapu. A kapu is an order. And when a king issues an order, everybody listens, and that the women were prohibited from going. Well, you had some of Cook's men sneaking off ship to go out and try to get women, right? And and that contributed to the tension. And and again, it's circumstance. I'm not saying these people are evil, but bad decisions. Bad decisions where the outcome was he died. So I so I for me as a political scientist and as a 
Kanaka. I'm an Aboriginal Hawaiian. I don't view Cook as a discoverer. He didn't discover anything, right? Mm-hmm. Anywhere. To me, he was a visitor. He was like a tourist that came to Hawaii, and he met his death because he made bad decisions. So in our classes that I teach at the university and others that are teaching, we give context to Cook's arrival here. Not that he discovered anything, but if you look at it from the European perspective, oh, Cook discovered uh, the Hawaiian Islands. No, he didn't. <laughs> Hawaiian okay. Islands were there long before Cook arrived. <laughs> okay. yeah, so it's really, and that's why your other guest with, with, with him speaking through education, why education is so important. I completely agree. Education is very important. Very important. Okay. And let's go back to our other guest, Benjamin Jasek. And Benjamin, uh, earlier I mentioned uh, the issue of, of stolen goods, and maybe I, I, I misspoke. Maybe uh, Cook did not take goods from the Hawaiian Islands, but uh, I believe he did take goods from Alaska and took them back to Europe. Is that right? Yeah, uh, there are. Uh, I mean, <laughs> in the place you can find a lot of those goods are over in uh, none other than the British Museum, where you can find a lot of stuff from around the world. Uh, uh, there are points where uh, a lot, there were things that were traded, uh, but there were also, uh, especially from the Aleutian Islands, uh, you know, uh, from the Anunga people, there were things that were stolen. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and what else do we need to, to understand about Captain Cook? We are kind of winding down the show now, and I, I feel like there's just so much to talk about. Uh, with this legacy. It's very complex. That's really what's coming across today, uh, listening to our different perspectives. And what, what's another issue that we need to understand about Captain Cook? I mean, uh, the, the biggest issue is understanding uh, not to just look at the individual, uh, but uh, in a lot of places, what he stands for, uh, or the kind of the symbol that he himself was turned into. Uh, and once you recognize that, uh, you're able to recognize also the erasure of the indigenous people in a lot of the places that he was named after. Absolutely. And these goods that are at the uh, museum there, the British Museum, uh, any efforts to repatriate any of those items or any movement at all? Uh, at this moment, uh, none that I know of, uh, but... Uh, as time is going on, uh, uh, I assume that there will be uh, very soon. Okay. And earlier we talked with Dr. Sai uh, about the mapping uh, that Cook is uh, really famous for in many ways. And um, what kind of contributions did he make in w- with regard to cartography there in Alaska, besides you know, the Cook Inlet, of course, and naming it? Yeah. Uh, so uh, a lot of
really native place. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, Cook's role as a naturalist, and we have about a minute before we have to wrap up, Benjamin. But if you could expand on that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, And so naturalism and a lot of 18th century sciences uh, onward even into the 20th and uh, 20th century uh, have this ideology of uplifting uh, kind of this Western European, quote, superior race ideology, uh, where uh, the level of personhood is connected to culture, Western European culture. Uh, That means that any indigenous culture, uh, regardless of how how complex uh, they are, uh, is understood as something lesser than. Uh, And that also includes even looking at indigenous peoples and our physical makeup as being under, uh, being understood as primitive, as opposed to actually being a person, uh, and so that that was one thing, one ideology uh, that ultimately uh, pushed a narrative that really still exists today. Well, it's been a really interesting conversation today, uh, and very much parallels uh, what was happening in the late 1770s with the British Empire. And uh, and this drive to colonialize and claim uh, various locations all over the world on behalf of the British Empire. And Captain James Cook, for better or worse, fits into that perspective uh, very prominently in some places and maybe not so prominently in others. It's been a really wonderful conversation today, and I want to thank all of our guests, Dr. Keanu Sai, Benjamin Jasek, and Bo Spiram for thoughts, insights, and perspectives on the legacy of James Cook. Join us tomorrow for another look in the past as we talk about the continuing efforts to free Leonard Peltier. You've been listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. As people seek to know diverse cultures, tribal museums and cultural centers grow more popular. So the Institute of American Indian Arts, who support this show, now provides a Master of Fine Arts in Cultural Administration. Focused on social equity and support of cultural community growth, this program combines administrative tools and techniques with socially engaged leadership, blending institutional skills and community outreach programming. Deadline to apply is February 15 at iaia.edu slash mfaca. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.